All right, if you've got a Bible, open it up to Proverbs chapter 1. Uh, if you were here with us last week, I said we're starting a new series in the book of Proverbs, and it's going to carry us all the way through the end of the summer. A good chunk of that is going to be uh, kind of topical in nature because that's the way that Proverbs really functions. When you think of sh- the short kind of statements that the book of Proverbs is full of, what you're typically thinking of is what comes in Proverbs chapter 10 all the way to the end in chapter 31. How Proverbs begins, though, in chapters 1 through 9 is with this long introduction that sets up the book. Proverbs 1, 1 through 7 is kind of the intro to the intro, if you will. And so we're going to spend a decent amount of time there and then work our way through the rest of chapter 1. Next week and the week that follows, we're going to work with chapter 2 and chapter 3. And then we'll jump into those more topical um, sort of statements that we see littered throughout the book of Proverbs. And we're going to ask four questions every week. What does the world say? What's the world's wisdom about any given topic? What does the Lord say about that topic in his word? How do we take that and apply it to our actual day-by-day, moment-by-moment, lived experiences and situations, and then how does the gospel sustain that? And So I want to start just right off the top with, what does the world say? What is the world's wisdom about wisdom in general? How we gain it, how we come across it. And the way that the world says that we do that is, Live and learn. That you've got to just make wild mistakes and then learn from those mistakes if you're ever going to get wise. That is the way that the world tells us wisdom comes about. Now, when Proverbs talks about wisdom and foolishness, uh, it's talking about something very, very specific. And so there are some instances in the world where live and learn is actually the way that you've got to just go about life. Your elementary school child has got to forget some things at home a few times before they learn to like check the backpack before they leave. That's not sinful. It's just there's a a wealth of experience that needs to be gained for a young person. When I was in kindergarten, we were all sitting kind of in one corner of the room and the teacher was reading to us a story and there was this pop that happened next to me and I looked over and this little guy, Matt, had stuck a staple in an electrical socket, right? Live and learn a little bit. You don't put metal things inside there. That's not sinful. It's not evil. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just, that's a tough lesson that you have to learn. You leave a fork in your Tupperware thing and you run it in the microwave, the sound will let you know that you need to learn and not do that again next time. When Proverbs talks about wisdom, and more specifically about foolishness and folly, it's talking about sin. It's talking about the reality that hardwired into the world that we live in is a structure and an order that the creator of the universe set up and that we can know the structure and the order. In fact, that most times we do know at least the generals about that structure and that order and yet sometimes we choose the evil thing, we choose the sinful thing. And so when Proverbs talks about foolishness, it's not talking about leaving the fork in the microwave. What Proverbs is talking about is something like getting overly invested in an, uh, emotionally and physically in a relationship that goes sour and then leaves you with emotional wounds that last for a long time. When Proverbs talks about foolishness or folly, it's talking about maybe a financial decision that plunges your family deep into debt. And on the front end, you should have known the folly of that. You should have been able to see the sin, the greed that was the foundation of that decision. 
The foolishness of Proverbs is more like lying to your parents, thinking they won't find out, but then they do because your lie catches up to you. Maybe it's the early days of your marriage and you speak too harshly or you say something too sharply with the subtle intent of taking a jab at your spouse. Proverbs says, that's folly. It's foolish. The world says we've got to live and learn, right? That you just make those mistakes and you kind of figure it out and hopefully by the time you die, you're just in a better place than when you were like 14. That's what the world says. But according to Proverbs, there's another way that we can live. According to the Lord, there's a better way to go about that, and we're given that better way right in the introduction to the introduction to the book of Proverbs. Let me just read the first seven verses here. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, for learning wisdom and discipline, for understanding insightful sayings, for receiving prudent instruction in righteousness, justice, and integrity, for teaching shrewdness to the inexperienced, knowledge and discretion to a young man. Let a wise person listen and increase learning, and let a discerning person obtain guidance. For understanding a proverb or a parable, the words of the wise and their riddles, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and discipline. Whereas the world says you've got to live and learn, the Lord says you can actually learn and live. You can flip the order of this. The entire purpose of the book of Proverbs is to help you learn so that you can live. You don't have to make big, life-altering, sin-inspired errors in order to learn how to be wise and to live well within the world that God has put together. You can gain wisdom first and then live out of it. If you're less young, let's say, you can keep growing in wisdom. You can keep taking information about the way it is that the world functions around us and the way that the Creator has created it, and you can grow increasingly in your wisdom. Verses 1 through 6 here lay out some components of what wisdom entails. And as Proverbs goes on and talks about wisdom, it's talking about any and all of these different components. Verse 2, there's insight. Insight is the ability to see what's really happening beneath the surface. It's the ability to see the not-so-obvious as though it were obvious. You've maybe spent time around someone who's an expert in a particular field, and they are observing a situation, or they're watching something play out, and you see what's happening on the surface. You see the obvious. They see the not-so-obvious. They've got insight into that thing. That's a component of wisdom. Another component is discipline. Discipline that says, I can not only hear something that's said, but I can actually take that and allow it to alter the way that I live. I can not only understand that there's wisdom out there, but I can allow that wisdom to impact the way I make decisions and the things that I do. That takes discipline. Wisdom has a morality component. Look at verse 3. Receiving prudent instruction in righteousness and integrity, learning to have a longing and a yearning, a preference for good rather than evil, and not just understanding that there's good and evil that exist out there in the world, but actually longing for the good, for the righteous, for the holy thing. That's part of what it is to be wise. Wisdom has a justice component also there in verse 3. Using what you know and what you perceive in order to do good on behalf of others. That's justice. That takes Wisdom, it's a component of wisdom. Wisdom has a skill component. In verse 4, 
Proverbs describes that as shrewdness to the inexperienced. Not just knowing what to do, but knowing how to do it. And wisdom has a discernment component. Being able to read a situation and make the right decision. When Proverbs talks about wisdom, it's talking about any and all of those various components. And right from the beginning, Proverbs says, you can have this. You don't have to make a total mess out of your life in order to get it. Instead, you can learn about the way that God has wired the world, and then you can live within it. Wisdom requires knowing what the order and the structure of the world that the the creator of the universe has created is, seeing how that plays itself out and all the nuances and details of our life and our relationships, our business, our finances, our parenting, our moods, our dispositions, our behaviors, and then living in response to it with insight and discipline, morality and justice, skill and discernment. The world says you've got to live and learn, but the Lord says no, you can learn and live. And verse 7 gives us lesson number one. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and discipline. Lesson number one is that the fear of the Lord is both a doorway and a path to wisdom. The last verse here in the preamble to the book of Proverbs, if you will, says here's the way you can know the pre-existing order and structure in the world. There's only one way, and that way is by a fear of the Lord, to have a reverence and an awe and a humility before the creator of the universe. Take a detour with me to the book of Genesis, if you will. The fall of humanity, the first sin in Genesis chapter 3, we often talk about what's present in that moment, that there's this temptation that comes to Adam and Eve that there's the presence of Satan there in the garden and he tempts them into sin. We don't often talk about what's missing or what's misplaced in uh, Genesis chapter 3. What's missing or what's misplaced is reverence. Let me explain. What the creator of the universe wants is the glory of his very existence to be displayed throughout all of his creation through relationship with a a humanity, a human race that's wholly dependent upon him. And so he tells Adam, there's a tree of knowledge of good and evil in the middle of the garden. Don't eat from that. You don't need to eat from that. I will tell you what is good and what is evil. You can depend on me for that. Then Satan arrives and says, did the Lord really say that? Can you really trust him with that? Is he holding out on you? Because if you eat from that tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Then the text tells us that the woman saw that the tree was desirable for obtaining wisdom, so she took some of the fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Is there temptation there? Absolutely. Is there reverence? There, a fear of the Lord. Well, there is reverence, but reverence for the wrong thing. What is the thing that captures the awe and the attention and the reverence of Adam and Eve? The tree. It's the tree that makes them say, Oh my gosh, everything I want right now in this moment is right there on that tree, and I'm going to take it and I'm going to eat it. I'm going to eat of that fruit. And thus, they're plunged into sin. 
There's no awe, there's no fear, there's no dependence upon the Lord. And so rather than walking in wisdom, which we're told here in Proverbs 7, begins with a fear of the Lord, Adam and Eve despise wisdom and discipline. They act foolishly. By the time you get to the book of Judges, we're told that everything is in complete chaos because people are doing, quote, whatever is wise in their own eyes. In your moments of sin, even if you think back on a season of life where you got just totally entrenched in a habitual sin, in a moment of reflection, in a moment of honesty, I think you would be willing to say to yourself, there was no reverence for the Lord in that area of my life, in that season of my life. Instead, what I had was a reverence and an awe for something else. I thought there was something else that was going to make me happy, that was going to fulfill whatever need that I had. And so I looked to that thing as if it was the greatest thing in the world, and I picked the fruit from that tree. Wisdom begins with fearing and a reverence for the Lord. And so you can take your pick. You can either have a fear that leads to wisdom and that wisdom leads to life, or you can have pride that leads to folly or foolishness and that will lead to destruction. C.S. Lewis says it this way. In God, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. Proverbs lays out two paths for us. That motif is something that's going to run its way through Proverbs, that there are these dichotomies. You can do this foolish thing and experience fill in the blank, or you can do this wise thing and experience fill in the blank, and those are your two options. Take your pick. Proverbs 1 verse 7 that says that you can either have a fear that leads to wisdom and knowledge or you can have a pride, you can despise wisdom and that will lead you into folly and ultimately to destruction. Verses 8 through 33 spell that out for us. Let's read them together. Listen, my son, to your father's instruction and don't reject your mother's teaching for they will be a garland of favor on your head and pendants around your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, don't be persuaded. If they say, come with us, let's set an ambush and kill someone. Let's attack some innocent person just for fun. Let's swallow them alive like Sheol, whole like those who go down to the pit. We'll find all kinds of valuable property and fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot with us and we'll share the loot. My son, don't travel that road with them or set foot on their path because their feet run toward evil and they hurry to shed blood. It is useless to spread a net where any bird can see it. But they set an ambush to kill themselves. They attack their own lives. Such are the paths of all who make profit dishonestly. It takes the lives of those who receive it. Wisdom calls out in the street. She makes her voice heard in the public squares. She cries out above the commotion. She speaks at the entrance of the city gates. How long, inexperienced ones, will you love ignorance? How long will you mockers enjoy mocking and you fools hate knowledge? If you respond to my warning, then I will pour out my spirit on you and teach you my words. Since I called out and you refused, extended my hand and no one paid attention, since you neglected all my counsel and did not accept my correction, I, in turn, will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you, 
when terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when trouble and stress overcome you. Then they will call me, but I won't answer. They will search for me, but won't find me. Because they hated knowledge, didn't choose to fear the Lord, were not interested in my counsel, and rejected all my correction, they will eat the fruit of their way and be glutted with their own schemes. For the apostasy of the inexperienced will kill them. The complacency of fools will destroy them. But whoever listens to me will live securely and will be undisturbed by the dread of danger. Two paths. Two options. And the first one is that there is a pride that leads to folly, that leads ultimately to destruction. There's a description and a destination given for that specific path. What's the description of this kind of living? Well, verses 10 through 16 spell it out for us. The description is of a person who just takes for themselves. Explicitly in the text, what's being taken is life and livelihood. Let's let's shed some blood. Let's set a trap and kill that person. And then we'll find some plunder and share the loot. We can take their life and we can take their livelihood. The picture is of a person who lives by the worldly maxim maxim that says, I'm going to get mine. I'm going to look out for number one. The thing that I want, by whatever means, I will get it for myself. That doesn't have to be someone who's a murderer or who's ultimately a thief. There are a lot of ways you can live with this sort of mentality. A bully at school tormenting another person to the point of despair. A keyboard tough guy who belittles people from the safety of his keyboard and internet comment sections. An online hacker who steals another person's identity. A person who willingly and joyfully plays the office politics game in order to see someone they don't like get fired or demoted or passed over for a promotion. A friend, podcast people I used air quotes, friend, who secretly hopes that bad comes upon another person in order to boost their own, their own feelings about themselves or their status. A gossip who spreads something false or hurtful for the sake of tearing down another person while lifting up themselves. Take, take, take. That's the description in Proverbs 1, verses 10 through 16. Let's lie in wait. Let's shed some blood. We'll share the plunder. What's the destination of that kind of living? Well, it is destruction. There are earthly consequences and there are eternal consequences for this kind of living. The earthly consequences are in verses 17 through 19. You're just setting a, you're spreading a net for yourself. You're setting an ambush to kill yourself. Literally, you're attacking your own life. You end up setting a trap for yourself. You get snared by the consequences of your own foolish, sinful activity. And it hurts. It hurts a lot. I don't need to give a bunch of illustrations in order for us all to call to mind a moment where our own sin caught up with us and the consequences were more painful than the rewards were gratifying. We can think of those times. We all know those moments in our own lives. We were literally attacking our own life. That's what verse 18 says. There are earthly consequences for this foolish sort of living. But there are also eternal consequences. Jump down to verse 24. Since I called out and you refused, extended my hand and no one paid attention, you neglected all my counsel and didn't accept my correction, I, in turn, will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you when it comes on you like a storm, when calamity comes like a whirlwind, when trouble and stress overcome you, then they will call to me, but I won't answer. They will search for me, but won't find me because they hated knowledge and didn't choose to fear the Lord. 
the eternal consequences for not fearing the Lord are the calamity will feel like it has come in a whirlwind that cannot be stopped. In a moment of final judgment, it will be too late to search for the Lord's help, to call upon the Lord's name. In that moment, if you chose not to fear and reverence Him during your life, there will be a real fear of Him as you are cast from His presence. And for all of eternity, those people will eat the fruit of their ways. They will be, quote, gluttoned by their own schemes. Complacency toward the Lord in life will lead to a kind of eternal destruction that is difficult to describe, that should be hard for us to think about, and should make our hearts heavy to envision the reality that any person would ever experience that. And so we read in verse 26, words that are hard for us to fathom. I will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you. How could that be true of the Lord? One commentator, I think, shed good light on that verse and said, God's laughter here is not giggly. He does not laugh at the pain of fools, but he does rejoice at the defeat of evil. Both the earthly consequences and the eternal consequences of foolish living and the destruction that comes from our pride grieve the heart of the Lord. But there is another way. You can live a different way, a way that begins with fear, leads to wisdom, that ultimately leads to life. There's a picture and a promise of that here. The picture is one of wisdom as a person. Verse 20, wisdom calls out in the street. She makes her voice heard in the public square. She cries out above the commotion. She speaks at the entrance of the city gates. Wisdom is going to be personified all throughout the book of Proverbs as if wisdom were this person that one could interact with. What that gives us is a picture of relationship. For the initial readers of the book of Proverbs, that image of wisdom as a person gave weight to the allure of wisdom, like beckoning you into a better way of living. For us today, that image is Jesus personified for us. Jesus Christ, the wise one. And with that personification, wisdom's described not primarily as something that you can possess, but a relationship that you can enter into. And that relationship isn't with some inanimate force or some set of book knowledge. It is with a real person. And that real person is Jesus Christ. That's the picture that we get. That wisdom is a relationship that you can step into. But there's also a promise. Look at what happens when we step into that relationship. Verse 23, if you respond to my warning, then I will pour out my spirit on you and teach you my words. There's an intimacy in that relationship that we can grow in, that is given to us. It's a gracious act on the Lord's part. All of this underscores kind of a fundamental reality, and that's that our primary struggles in life are not situational, they are not informational, they are not instructional. Our primary struggles are not circumstantial, they're not even existential. Our primary struggle in life is relational. And while the world says you can look out for number one and you can get yours, the Lord says you don't need to do that because I've given you myself. And now the Lord... And the fear of the Lord is a doorway into relationship. Wisdom itself is a gift that we receive because of the gospel. Jesus himself, the glory of God in the face of the Savior, is the ultimate gift of the gospel. And so don't miss this. If you chase the gift rather than Jesus Christ, the ultimate gift, you've entirely missed the point. 
This is the case with any of the gospel's myriad of gifts. But in the case of wisdom, if you try to go through or not go through that doorway, but instead you just chase the gift, you might end up being the smartest, most insightful, most skilled and discerning person in hell. And that's not what we're after. The fear of the Lord is a doorway into relationship, and that relationship is what saves. And then the fear of the Lord is a path toward intimacy in relationship. He will pour His Spirit out upon us. As we walk along that path on the other side of that doorway, what we get is wisdom, sure, but what we get more than that is intimacy in relationship. Our awe grows larger and larger as we behold with more passion the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Wisdom because, becomes something that adorns us, but the presence of relationship with Jesus is what defines us. The fear of the Lord is not just the beginning of wisdom, it is also the pathway that we walk along alongside wisdom. And so the world says, live and learn. Get yours by whatever means necessary. But the Lord says, learn and live. And you can do so because I've given you myself. At the communion table, we remember that he gave himself. We're reminded that we don't have to live in a manner that, not, that looks out for only what we can get for ourselves. We're reminded that there's abundant life along a pathway of walking with Him, and we're shown in just striking clarity that we are to revere the Lord. Communion is a group reminder that there should be awe at the cross. Communion Worship on a Sunday morning is group reverence. That's what we do together when we come together on a Sunday morning. We revere the Lord alongside one another. And so we're going to take communion this morning. If you are someone who's going to pass this out, if you would come and grab these. As these make your way down your section, as always, there's a stack of two cups. The top cup is juice. The bottom cup has a little wafer in it. If you need gluten-free wafer, it's in the little uh, frilly thing in the middle. The fear of the Lord is a beginning of wisdom. A reverence and an awe for the Lord is a doorway into a relationship whereby one of those gifts is wisdom. You may be here this morning and you've not ever stepped through that doorway. Those of us who have are going to take communion. If you've not ever made that step, I want to invite you to do that this morning. You may be looking at your circumstances that surround you and you say, you know what, my life is kind of a mess. I've made some decisions that have brought some real pain into my existence here. And I don't know where to go forward. I want to encourage you that your step forward is through a fear of the Lord whose body was broken for you and whose blood was poured out for you and by which you can receive the grace of God for the forgiveness of your sin. That is step number one. It's a doorway fear of the Lord is also a pathway that those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ in walk down. We walk down a pathway that is marked by a constant reverence for the Lord. And so that's why we pause to do this act on Sunday mornings, because we need the reminder in front of our eyeballs of what it is that we are going to reverence, what it is that we have awe for. We don't have awe or reverence for anything else in all of the universe except for the broken body of Jesus Christ, the poured out blood of Jesus Christ should so captivate us 
that nothing else is even enticing. And sometimes we need that reminder. We need that reminder in group settings. We need that reminder in the mornings when we wake up. That's why we get into the Word and we remind ourselves of the Gospel. We need it all the time. And so what I want to do is pray that this would be a worshipful, reverent experience. Application number one of fearing the Lord is reminding ourselves of His goodness and His glory and the truth of the Gospel. Let's pray together. God, thank You for the truth of Jesus Christ and His death on the cross on our behalf. Lord, I pray that daily as we reflect on the gospel, we would always do so in a manner that has awe before you, God, that the death of Jesus Christ on the cross would never be yawn-inspiring to us, Lord, but that it would always be awe-inspiring. God, that as we think about Jesus' blood poured out for us, Lord, that we would forever be in awe of His sacrifice on the cross. When we think about His body broken for us, Lord, that we would forever bow before Him in reverence because of the goodness and the grace and the mercy of His sacrifice on the cross, Lord. God, would You stir in our hearts a deeper passion for that truth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, this is the body of Christ broken for you. Take and eat. This is the blood of Christ poured out for you. Take and drink. In light of our union as the body of Christ, as those who've stepped through the doorway and are now walking along the path of relationship with Jesus, I want to offer just three more pieces of application really briefly. Proverbs lays out for us how gospel-centered citizens of the Lord's kingdom are to live and what He's going to produce in us. That's what we'll see throughout this series. But the starting point is all about a fear of the Lord, which means this. It means that wisdom commands our attention and we need to pay it. Jesus commands our attention. How long, inexperienced ones, wisdom cries out. It means we need to read His Word. We have to see what He has to say about how it is that we are to live. It means that we rely on the Holy Spirit to illuminate the truth of His Word, to shed light on its application in our lives. It means we can't approach life in an unthoughtful sort of way. We need to rehearse the gospel to ourselves as daily reminders that we don't have all the answers, that we need a Savior, that we have that Savior in Jesus, and that we can trust and depend on Him in all things. We need to think hard about the implications of God's Word. We need to pause and to think and to pray before we make decisions, to be thoughtful in our situations and allow the truth of God's Word to color how we see what's happening around us. Wisdom, Jesus, commands attention. We need to pay it. Wisdom also gives a warning, and we better heed it. There are consequences for ignoring wisdom's warning. The direst of those consequences is eternal. The most immediate of those consequences is hardwired into the world around us. And Proverbs wants us to be aware. If you live in this foolish, sinful way, this is the thing that will happen to you. But you don't have to live like that. You can heed the warning. You can walk in relationship with Jesus and choose a different way. And then last, wisdom makes a promise. And we better walk in that promise. Jesus makes a promise to us. And that promise is that if we step through the doorway of reverence and fear and we walk along that pathway, what we get is the one who gave himself. 
We get intimacy and relationship with Him. We can really live because He lived. We can learn because His Spirit is within us, His model is before us, and His peace is available to us. But we have to walk in that path. That path begins at reverence, and it continues in reverence. When we sing in our church services on Sunday mornings, what we're doing is singing the gospel. We take communion, we're seeing the gospel. We sing, we're remembering the truth of the gospel. And so we stand up and in a reverent sort of way, we say, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. He is worthy of it all. That's rehearsing the truth of the gospel in order to keep ourselves in a place of reverence. Reverence is where wisdom begins because reverence is where relationship happens with Jesus. Let's sing together. Let's pray together. God, I pray that uh, a reverent, awe-filled fear would be what distinguishes the path and the the trajectory of our lives, Lord. God, that every day, that moment by moment, Lord, that we would keep before us chiefly and supremely the truth of Jesus Christ on the cross and that that would always inspire awe in our hearts, Lord. That our eyes would look to there rather than anywhere else, Lord. God, I pray that the goodness that you've displayed to us in the sending of your Son, Lord, that that would be not just something that we believed at one time in our lives and then tried to progress away from, Lord, but instead that that would be the central grounding truth in our lives, Lord, that we would never try to convince ourselves that we've graduated on from the gospel and now we've moved on to deeper wisdom or something more true than that, Lord, but instead would the pathway by which we pursue intimate relationship with you always be a reverent awe for the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Lord, would you keep that ever before our hearts and our minds, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, We're going to close with one last song together. Uh, He is a good, good father. Amen? Amen. Amen.